I, I remember when I was a child growing up, I used to look forward to the arrival of the latest issue of the National Geographic magazine. I don't know if you've ever done that yourself. Um, I love getting new issues. I love looking at the beautiful pictures of amazing places. And these pictures just simply mesmerized me. And they had such a powerful hold on my heart. Now, that's natural, isn't it? Uh, It is easy to adore something that is beautiful, and it is easy to love that which is outstanding. But, you know, when I look at pictures of, for example, L.A.'s Skid Row, or when I look at the pictures of run-down, dilapidated neighborhoods of once great Detroit, I don't feel the same way. <laughs> to be frank, I recoil in horror, and I make a mental note, I will never <laughs> go there. I will stay away. And you know, that is exactly what makes this passage so utterly breathtaking. Because what God says here to Israel is, you are mine. You are mine. Now, if you noticed, the end of the first verse, chapter 43, verse 1, it says, I have called you by name. You are mine. But you know, that is actually totally unexpected. Because chapter 43, verse 1 begins uh, in the Bible that we read, but now, thus says the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew language, there's one word that's translated both and and but. It depends on the context. And so, the translators of the ESV actually did a great job translating this verse, but now, thus says the Lord, But actually, if you understand what's going on, the the sense of the sentence is this. And now. Now then, says the Lord. And the importance of that statement is that when chapter 43, verse 1, it says, now then, this, this is what the Lord says. This is God's answer to all the realities that have been presented in the present and previous chapters. Now, let's just forget about everything, but just remember one last chapter. In chapter 42 alone, Israel was seen as spiritually blind and deaf, and Israel was seen as unwilling to learn. Israel was seen as disobedient, and well-deserving of God's anger. That's just one last chapter. Let's forget about everything else that came before. In one chapter, that's what Israel is. Spiritually blind and deaf, unwilling to learn, disobedient and well-deserving of God's wrath. And so having come out of that chapter, when you hear in chapter 43, verse 1, now then, What do you expect? Having come out of the chapter, when you read the words, 
and now, now then. Those words sound ominous, and they have an ominous feeling to them because we expect the hammer to drop any moment now. I mean, isn't that the logical response? Israel, spiritually blind and deaf, unwilling to learn, disobedient, deserving of God's wrath. Except that is not what happens. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God says, I am the Lord who created you, and I am the Lord who formed you. And think about what that means. God, he is the creator, and the creator has the right of ownership over the things that he has created. The creator has authority over the things and the people that he has created. And so look at verse 7. He calls them, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Recently, I had a conversation with a man uh, who, who said he was a Native American, and he told me about his spiritual life, and he told me about how uh, he reveres the Creator who made all mankind. And because he reveres the Creator and he acknowledges the Creator uh, made everyone, regardless of what religion they belong to, his goal in life is to be, be loving and kind to people. And I said, you know, that's really great. And, we, and I had an, however, I had an opportunity to tell him, we live in a sinful, fallen world, and none of us measure up to the standards of the Creator. You need a Redeemer. You see, that's our predicament before the God who is our Creator. We have all strayed from the Creator's purpose, and we have all fallen short of the Creator's standards. That means before the God who is our Creator, we are guilty, and because of that, before the Creator, sinners like you and I, we are perpetually anxious for the hammer that is about to drop. But, thanks be to God, we read here the Creator is also our Redeemer. So in verse 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And it's the same word that we love from the Bible. I have, been, I have become your kinsman redeemer. And we have a whole book in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, where we see what a kinsman redeemer is and does. We see the character of Boaz, who becomes a kinsman redeemer to Naomi and Ruth, and he takes it upon himself to meet all their needs, to protect them, to pay for their debts, to take them under his wings. 
And when God says here, fear not, for I have redeemed you, that's God telling us that he has embraced the sinful mankind, that he has embraced sinful Israel as his own family. And that he has took it upon himself to be their kinsman redeemer. And he has took it upon himself to meet all their needs as his own. And that is why he says to Israel, you are mine. Now, do you realize, do you see how unexpected this is? God is not saying this to a nation who had proven herself faithful, devoted, wise, and holy. God is saying this to a nation that just last chapter we read was spiritually blind and deaf, hard-hearted, unwilling to learn, well-deserving of God's wrath, but he says to them, fear not. I have become and I am your kinsman redeemer. You are mine. So that's the first thing God says to them, you are mine. And the second thing he says to them that is utterly against expectation, so surprising is that he says to them, you are precious. You are precious. Now, I don't need to tell you, but we all have troubles in life, don't we? And our trials become especially hard to bear when we suspect that our hardship is God punishing us. And don't you see how easy it must have been for Israel to think this way? Because you see, their sin was undeniable. God's holiness was also undeniable. Surely they could put two and two together and say, surely the Babylonians are coming against us and they are about to take us captives. They are about to destroy everything. Surely it is because God hates us and has sent the Babylonians against us to punish us. And yet, what we see here is that yes, God is holy. And yes, God does discipline his children. But even so, he never stops loving his children. Refining trials must come. But they do not come from God's hatred of his wayward children. But they come from his love, which seeks their good. So verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. You see, God must discipline them. And so that refining fire will come. And yet, God is with them in their troubles. Verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Cush and Seba are the outermost regions of Egypt. 
and they are being mentioned here to drive home the point that at the time of Exodus, God weighed in his mind, on the one hand, Israel, which was at the time a nation, a people in bondage and who were slaves. And on the other hand, the great and prosperous kingdom of Egypt. And God weighed them in his mind. On the one hand is Israel, humbled, humiliated, considered worthless. And by the way, it becomes really obvious when you read at, at that part of the Bible, they were not devoted to the Lord. They were not seeking God. But God weighs them in his mind. On the one hand, nation of Israel, humiliated, despised, not devoted to the Lord, not serving the Lord. And on the other hand, the, the great, prosperous, vast kingdom of Egypt. And in God's mind, it was no-brainer. He shatters Egypt for Israel's benefit. He puts Israel ahead of and above Egypt because he, God, loved Israel. And that is what Isaiah is telling his people that they must remember in their present trials. Verse 4, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. You see, God is pointing Isaiah's people to what God did at the time of Exodus. Don't you see that at that time, Israel did not serve the Lord. Israel was not devoted to the Lord. They were stiff-necked. Actually, that's one of the most common expressions describing the people of the generation. Stiff-necked, grumbling, complaining, unbelieving people. And yet, when God considered them, they were precious to him. And for their sake, he sacrificed and shattered much greater nation. And now Isaiah is saying, just as God did then, he will always put Israel ahead of all peoples. And God must send Israel into deep waters and intense fire. But God will be with them in love. And because he loves them, he will not count even the whole world too precious in order to seek Israel's good. You are precious, God says. And thirdly and finally, God says to Israel, you are my sons and daughters. You are my sons and daughters. I don't know if you are aware. Um, in this case, I almost am tempted to say that ignorance is bliss. But uh, there are some Christians today who believe that, that Israel and the New Testament church are distinct institutions, that God has different plans for the ethnic Israel and the New Testament church, and that God's purposes for them are different. 
uh, these people go by uh, the name dispensationalist, and their theology is called dispensationalism of various kinds. But if you think about that, I almost am tempted to say that if you don't know anything about them, <laughs> you are almost better off. Because it's such a terrible and a tragic error. Because you realize that everything that we are reading in the book of Isaiah and everything that we are reading in this very passage, all this God is saying to the nation of Israel. And if Israel and the New Testament church are not the same, then Christians today, you and I, we have no right to think that God will respond to our sins with grace. And if Israel and the New Testament church are distinct and God has different calling and plans for them, then you and I, we have no reason to think that God will walk with us in our trials because the promise is here. God gave them to the nation of Israel. And if the nation of Israel and the New Testament church are distinct, then we have no right or reason to expect that God will put our good ahead of men and peoples. And if Israel and the New Testament church are distinct, then none of the precious promises of this chapter are ours. But thankfully, the New Testament teaches, as a matter of fact, it's taught all over the New Testament, but in particular, the entire book of Galatians is really answering that question, that in God's purpose and grace and love, that Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, they make up the true Israel in God's eyes. So in the New Testament, the New Testament church, true Christians, are the one and the same as the true Israel. And that is what makes all of God's promises here given to the nation of Israel the promises that God makes to you and me. In other words, this expectation-shattering grace. Just in the last chapter, Israel was demonstrated as spiritually blind, deaf, disobedient, deserving of nothing but wrath, but against all expectations and reason, God gives them grace. And he says, you are mine. And loved ones, that is the same promise and blessing that you and I possess and have every right to embrace. And just as he promised Israel, we can count on his loving presence in our troubles. We can count on God to walk with us with love through our darkness. And we can count on God to hold us, hold nothing too precious 
in order to save us and do us good. In fact, there is a straight line drawn from this passage to Jesus Christ because the same God who did not consider Egypt too precious in order to save Israel, that same God, did not consider the life of his own son too precious in order to save you and me. And he gave Jesus as our ransom and in exchange for us. Do you see what God has done? That's the spiritual heritage. That's the spiritual blessing. That's the promises that you and I have received. And so every Christian, you and I, can joyfully and confidently take hold of these precious promises. Are you a sinner? (laughs) Of course you are. Do you deserve nothing but wrath and judgment? Of course you do. Yet against logic, against expectations, God gives you grace. Are you troubled in life? God walks with you in love. And further, there's nothing that God will spare, nothing that God will withhold in order to do you good. And so the promises here we realize have several layers. On the one hand, they apply first and foremost to the people of Israel, but they apply just as well to us. So verse 6, God says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So that promise, first and foremost, is a promise to bring back all the captives from the Babylonian captivity. But the promise is also to do good to all his sons and daughters, to bring them safely through their deep waters and intense fires. In fact, that is how God brings glory to himself. He formed us and he made us so that he might bring us through the deep waters and intense fires, that we might know his love, and that in knowing his love for us, we might give God glory. And so listen, God says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by by name. You are mine. I have called you, God says. You have been called. In other words, your God-given calling. And isn't it interesting? We spend so much effort and energy trying to find out what God's calling for us is. Now, that is an important question that needs to be considered. But see here, you have a God-given calling that's very clear. 
Your God-given calling is to lay aside your fear and be comforted by His love. That's God's calling for you. And God says again, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. God who speaks to us today knows the good things he will do for us in the days to come. That's what that promise means. When God spoke these words to Israel, he knew. He knew the good things that he will do for their children. That is to say, God's blessings are not for today only, but for days and years to come. And it is to say that God's blessings are not for us only, but for our children too. God says, they are my sons. They're my daughters. I know what I'm going to do for them. I know the good things I am going to do for them. So loved ones, would you lay aside your fear? And remember this, God says to you, you are mine. You are precious. You are my sons and daughters, that nothing to me is too precious for you. In fact, this is how Paul sums it up in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you hear that? Not even the life of his son, his one only begotten son, not even his life was too precious. And he gave him away for you and for me. And if that's how God loves us, how can we have any doubt that with him he will graciously give us all things? In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you surprise us, that you love what is broken, the people that are ruined, people who have demonstrated are not deserving of your kindness, and yet it is to them you have drawn near, and it is for them you sacrificed your only son. So we are comforted, and we give you praise. Oh, Father, indeed, we face many troubles in life. Help us to remember the love with which you gave us your Son, that in that love, we might find our peace and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.